Welcome to another episode of the Carpe Fide podcast, where if the shoe fits, you wear it. And if the truth hurts, you bear it. I am Justin Gruber. And I am Jesse Gruber. And today we hope you will seize Seize the the faith. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 5 through 9 tonight, so you can turn there and get ready. And while my computer is loading, I'm just going to go ahead and double down on my redundancy here, getting the notes open on my phone so that we are all good. And... I would like to, sorry, typing, I do not do more than one thing at once well, just so you're all on the same page with why I'm pausing my speaking. All right, I have redundancy on the notes, so we're good to go. Uh, Tonight's sermon title is He Gets Us or We See Him. He Gets Us or We See Him. Um... So I'm going to start off talking, talking about the title before we dive right into the scripture. Um, the He Gets Us campaign. Anybody ever heard, have seen the commercials, He Gets Us? Anyone at all? They've popped up either on your social media, they've popped up on maybe the Super Bowl last year when you saw it, or any TV show you've been watching. They do sporting events. So like if you watch a baseball game, um, you might randomly see like, I don't know if you're, this might be new information for those of you that watch baseball games. But on baseball games, they actually usually do like green, some, some stadiums will do green screen generated images onto the pads of the backstop that can rotate through. Some of them actually have rotating pads. So it's all about advertising, right? You can do more advertising and sometimes there'll be like a, a campaign that talks about Jesus. It's the He Gets Us campaign. This is an, uh, an ad campaign that is done um, by an organization to try to help people um, become acquainted with Jesus in, in a particular way. Now, I'm going to talk about the ad campaign because its title is He Gets Us, and, and that in of itself isn't a problem. In fact, I just want to make sure I'm, I'm not, I'm going to get more passionate than maybe I need to, but I'm, I'm not angry necessarily at people wanting the world to know who Jesus is, amen? I think we all want the world to know who Jesus is. Just be, be very clear on that. We need to make much of Jesus. One of the things I get really upset about is when I see people making much of Jesus, but not actually making much of Jesus in the way that Jesus has revealed himself to us in the scriptures, right? I can't make Jesus known unless Jesus has made himself known to me. And I can only make Jesus known to anyone else as Jesus has revealed himself. If I make Jesus known in a way that he has not revealed himself, or in a way he's only kind of revealed himself, then I'm actually hiding what Jesus has revealed. Does that make sense? Am I on the same page? All right. All right. So the He Gets This campaign is an ad campaign that's run by an organization called Haven and the Servant Foundation, which is also sometimes called the Signatory. It's Signatory, like sign, T-R-Y, Signatory. And you sign a bunch of papers. All right. Um, and they're a nonprofit donor-advised fund. I say that because I don't want you to think I'm just being ignorant. I'm just talking about commercials. There's organizations behind this campaign, the He Gets Us campaign, uh, Jesus Gets You campaign. All right. The organizations do many wonderful things and are Christian-focused and needs-oriented. What I mean is these organizations, they're not just doing an ad campaign. Yes, they are doing an ad campaign. They also do other good things, clean drinking water to Africa. Those are great things. Working on Bible translations, helping missions go forward. Those are all great things. Amen? Uh, I'm, I'm thankful for, for those things happening, and I'm thankful for nonprofits that do those types of things. What, in fact, had they continued to do those things, I would have not even necessarily had any issues with anything they ever did. The problem was they launched um, $100 million into an ad campaign, right? 
actually it may have been now like two billion. It's climbed, right? So the, the first big launch they did was at the Super Bowl last year, but they actually started doing ads at sporting venues on TV shows for the prior whole year before. So they put a lot of money into this He Gets Us campaign. The problem with, the, with what they're doing with the He Gets Us campaign is they're trying to rebrand Jesus, which I, I think we should be very cautious in even uttering those, those words, right? Um, they want Jesus to be available to the world in a way that the world can receive Jesus. But I would like the world to receive Jesus as Jesus has called himself to be received. Do you see the difference? All right, I'll move forward. Uh, so there are, they have a rebranding focus. They want to rebrand Jesus and more specifically Christianity, even more specifically the conservative evangelical position. They want the negative stigma around Jesus, particularly inside of like conservative churches and Christian churches, um, they want that stigma to go away, so they want to rebrand Jesus in a way that everyone can feel very comfortable with Jesus. Jesus himself, however, did not make people feel very comfortable when Jesus was here. <laughs> he tended to make people feel rather uncomfortable. Multiple times, people tried to murder Jesus in public by stoning him to death, and eventually he did indeed get murdered in public on the cross, as was preordained by the Lord for our salvation. Amen? Amen. All right. Now, this isn't a malicious campaign, overtly. I want to say that right off the bat. I don't think they intend evil. I don't think this is some sort of cabal, all right? This is not Illuminati stuff. That's not what I'm saying at all. <laughs> I don't think they want to even seem to be heretics. I don't think they want to be heretics. I don't believe that's their goal in the campaign. I do want to cautious us, caution us, because I believe that there are many, as we look back over church history, many of, the, many of the people that are indeed heretics did not necessarily want to be heretics. The problem is that what they began to believe and espouse about Christ was contrary to what Christ revealed about himself, and therefore they became heretics, even though that wasn't their intended goal. The problem is not that whether or not they were a heretic, the problem is whether or not they repented and returned to the truth of Christ. That's, that's always and forever what we want to see happen when any of us err from the truth of Christ. So I have a few videos we're going to watch. Particularly, I have two videos. Now, if you have the notes that I posted on Signal for everyone to see, um, there's three videos there. The, this is just, you might not know this if you've never like, tried to do a video on YouTube or a podcast or something. Uh, the second video that's linked in our notes is pretty much a song that's playing over some images, which I'll talk about in a second. But because it's a song, <laughs> they won't necessarily let you show it in public. Like, that's not a thing. In fact, if you ever try to do a video and you try to embed maybe a song that's being played in your video, just be very cautious because YouTube will block you from uploading that video because they're very sensitive about song rights. All right, so I can't actually show you the second one, but you can see it. The link is in the notes. So we're going to watch two videos. I'm just going to talk about them. I want you to understand this He Gets This campaign. I want you to understand why I struggle with it. But our text tonight expressly takes the concept and redeems it to the truth. Now, we've talked about the He Gets This campaign in community groups multiple times. If you've not come to community groups, I invite you to join us at community groups. We've talked about things also that are like the He Gets This campaign, ads, images, pictures, or descriptions that the world is trying to latch Jesus onto right, that we want to accurately 
take the truth of Christ and be able to talk about, sometimes be able to explicitly tear down if it's just a straight up false ideology. And that's the whole idea of our community group. So I invite you to come to community group if you'd like to further have a concept and understanding of how we try to take the word of God and make sure we can wield it as the sword against Satan, sin, and lies so that Christ can be exalted. So having said all that, let's watch, we'll just go right in order, Amy. We'll watch the first video first, and then all I'm going to do is talk a little bit about it. I responded to the call. I didn't know if he was guilty or not. I couldn't ignore public opinion. I got caught up in the emotion of the trial. I could have testified, but I got scared. I'm expected to be tough on crime. I know my son was innocent. I will never forget his final words. Jesus rejected resentment on the cross. He gets us. Just want to be clear, Jesus did not reject resentment on the cross. Jesus received resentment on the cross. He received it. In fact, he received all sin on the cross onto himself. He died bearing our sin in a way that we could not because he had never sinned. We do not have the ability to bear resentment on the cross. We don't have that ability. All you have the ability is to bear your sin on the cross. Jesus could bear others' sin on the cross. The whole idea there was to paint the picture inserting Christ into a modern-day execution so that you could get the idea that Jesus was unjustly crucified but the whole feel of it really challenges the weight of crucifixion. It challenges the weight of how justice goes forward, right? To be sure, there is nothing... All right, well, let me be careful. We talked a little bit about it at community groups a couple weeks ago. The Bible is explicit. There are crimes people commit that lead to their death. I know that's like not a popular thing to say, but the death penalty for sins that are egregious before the Lord is not something man thought up. It's something God instituted because you are image bearers of Christ. And when one image bearer destroys another image bearer, they have forfeited their right to live as an image bearer of God. That's God's opinion, not mine. The whole ad itself is trying to put a twist on the crucifixion on the cross. Just understand this. The cross was intended by Christ. The cross was intended by God. The very existence of Christ pointed to the cross. It was not a surprise that injustice would be carried out on the God-man Jesus Christ at the cross. It's not like we actually get messed up justice. Yes, we have problems as humans in doling out correctly justice. Not very often, like they want you to think. <laughs> but there are times, to be sure, when we, are, when we faultily hand out justice, to be sure. The cross was absolutely injustice. And it was absolutely intended by God. Because God is sovereign even over our frail view of justice. Now, I'm going to stop talking about this video. We can talk about it more at Community Group if you want to dissect it. Anytime I watch a video that leads me exactly to the scriptures to point out the idea, it, Jesus 
took sinful resentment on himself on the cross to die for it. That's a different message. He didn't die on the cross so that you could feel seen and heard. He died on the cross so that you could be redeemed. All right, I'll stop. Let's watch another one. I just want you to know that I'm not calling on this campaign in a way that was ignorant. Like I've looked at it, I've tried to understand it, and I know God's word, and then it bothers me because we must rightly reflect the glory of God. Amen? Amen. Okay, so here's, here's another one. Here's another video. There was a family. They played together and laughed together. But they weren't completely alike. And as they grew older, their opinions widened and they distanced from each other. Conversations became heated. Reunions became more and more uncomfortable. They thought they were made for each other. One thinking of one another. Brother aligned against sister. Never thinking just for one second. Birthdays were ignored. Gatherings stopped. Because each had to be right. Jesus' family was messy too. He gets us. I do like it when I see some of you like squinting, trying to understand what the heck was being purposed uh, in the video. That makes me happy, (laughs) actually. Uh, Jesus' family was messy too. He gets us. (sighs) Jesus' family was not messy like your family is messy. Because in Jesus' family, there were two opinions. And it wasn't two broken sides sinning against each other in the views of their opinions. It was Jesus being God and his family rejecting him as God. That is not his family being messy like yours. It's, it's not. In fact, Jesus promises that he has not come so that we could have happy unicorn tickle fights. Rather, he has brought a sword that would divide families. Father against son, brother against sister, mother against daughter. And in saying that, what he was revealing was that the truth of Christ will be hated by some. People will hate you if you love God. That's not messy like someone is a Democrat and a Republican. Okay? That's not like messy like even somebody is pro-death penalty and someone isn't. That's not like somebody um, has an opinion on what's happening in Israel or the Ukraine. That's not like somebody has an opinion on whether or not you should wear a mask. That's a little different. I just want to submit, again, Jesus didn't come so that you could feel affirmed. He came so that you could know you sinned against a holy God, but he would save you anyway. That's the He Gets Us campaign. The whole of Scripture, and I cried out that there was a connection between Jesus and humanity that is real and visceral. But it called out in a way where we must acknowledge what we see here. And we must change what we see because we must change what we're looking at. It, it connects Christ to humanity in a very real way. The whole purpose is to encourage us. 
I don't know if you remember last week, but last week we had this, this um, calling out, really, of, for, for us, this idea, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? And in that is a very challenging passage. The whole idea of the scripture this week is to be not challenging, right? Not to put, make you feel uncomfortable, to, but to make those who have, have been feeling uncomfortable, but to make, them, make those people encouraged. It's to encourage us tonight. That is specifically what we'll read tonight. So I want to take us to evaluate. Do we evaluate it because Jesus gets us, or do we evaluate it because we see him? All right, so now with that in mind, let's go through the scriptures. I don't think this is going to take us long because one of the joys um, of the author of Hebrews that we have repeatedly said is how clearly he writes. His argumentation tonight and usage of the Old Testament is crystal. It is, it's perfect, you know, I could, literally, I could literally read it and just be done, but that'd be too easy, so you have to sit there and wait. <laughs> the first thing we're going to start out reading tonight is Hebrews 2, verses 5 through the beginning part of 8. So hopefully by now, you've gotten there in the scriptures. Hebrews 2, we're going to read verses 5 through the beginning of verse 8. Our, our uh, first point here is, who is in charge? Here's what we read, starting in verse 5. For he did not subject to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking. But one has testified somewhere saying, what is man that thou rememberest him or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet." For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subject to him. All right, so we're going to stop. Beginning of verse 8. We're not going to read the end of verse 8. Who's in charge? The first thing verse 5 tells us very clearly is it's not angels. Now, this is callback right to our previous discussion in Hebrews, where he spends a large portion of chapter 1 pointing out this, this idea that there could be some way in which we could become more comfortable, right? The, the Jewish leader, the Jewish worshipers of Christ could become more comfortable, they could become less rejected by the, the Jewish people worshiping at the temple if they viewed Christ in a way that was as an exalted angel. They could then maybe walk more readily into the liturgy that would happen inside of temples and inside of um, uh, tabernacles all over the place. They could, they could enjoin themselves to the worship. They could get back into the community of Israel because that would be a huge help to them. Because at the point you became a Christian in the world and you said Jesus Christ was King, Messiah, Lord, and Savior, right? You were rejected. You were rejected by all of Roman culture who saw Caesar as the supreme ruler and God. And you were rejected by your entire Jewish community, the Israelite community. You were rejected by them because they did not view Jesus as Messiah, King, Savior, as God. And so he feeds into the reality, connecting us back to so many Old Testament scriptures that say Jesus is the sovereign, sustaining word of all creation, sovereign over all things. He is the radiance of God's glory. He is more than you could ever compare to an angel. Don't make that mistake. Here, what he says in verse five, starting right off, is that the whole of earth was not subject to angels. It was actually subject to something different. Now, we could think right away that the answer is obviously the earth is subject to who? God, yes and amen. And that's the easy thing, and I'm not here to in any way dissuade you from that, nor is the author of Hebrews. 
The earth, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Everything belongs to God, amen? It's all his land, it's all his resources, it's all his time, it's all his matter, all throughout all of the cosmos. But the scripture is going to be very specific tonight about what God has done, whom God has given authority, whom God has placed in charge. And it's going to be specific in a way that's going to bring about a full understanding for us as man to connect to the God-man Jesus Christ. The first point is that God did not put angels in charge. This is verse 5, for he did not subject to, to angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking of. All right. Of the inhabited earth or the coming earth under the physical reign of Christ, none of that is subject to the angels. None of it. They are not in charge of any of it. And I say that because the word here has a range of meaning that seems most commonly refer to the earthly inhabited terrestrial sphere, right? We read this phrase, he did not subject the angel to angels, the phrase, the world to come. That's the word I'm speaking of. That's the Greek that I'm speaking of here. It has, in its most plain meaning, it means the inhabited earth, the earth that we see, the place on earth where there are people and animals that habitate it. But it also more rarely has a feel of the earth that exists from Christ's enthronement to his eventual eternal physical reign and all of that 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 would include, right? We could think of it also as ranging from the time Christ exalted in salvation to his throne and then also when he will physically rule and reign over the earth. The point here is that of all that we can understand, angels aren't in charge. Now, we looked at angels last week, right? I don't do a lot of angelology. It's not something that you often have to do in the scriptures. But because we spoke about angels, I spoke about the things that angels do. The angels, the name both in its Hebrew and its Greek, means messengers. They are traditionally seen as messengers from God, but they also act out the will of God. That is more rightly to be seen what the angels do. The angels do what God declares them to do that enacts his will. They are agents for the will of God. Now here specifically, and it's also interesting, I didn't even talk about it last week, but when you get that picture, you remember um, Jacob sees this stairway to heaven, which didn't mean for that to just come out like the song's title is, but Jesus sees a stairway to heaven, right? And when he gets that vision from God, he sees angels going and coming from heaven. Do you remember that? And it almost is symbolically in the reality that there is a whole world of spiritual warfare that goes on. And in that world, there are angels constantly moving and going to carry about and to bring forth the will of God over the entire face of the earth. And yet none of those beings whom have non-corporeal being, we are corporeal beings, they are created in a way that is seemingly much more less bound than we are. Yet none of them are in charge over this terrestrial sphere, both in its current shape and in its redeemed state when Christ brings, rules, and reigns over a new sinless earth. No matter how you look at it, that's not their role. So we need to better understand what the author's trying to point out here. What does he want us to know then? Angels aren't in charge. Great, we get it. But what does it have to do with the Christ? What does it have to do with me? And when I'm on my phone, my screen is very small. <laughs> we know that angels aren't in charge because this author then uses the Old Testament scriptures. In fact, he uses a well-known Old Testament scripture to bring about, to wake us up, to remind us that the angels aren't in charge and that God has already told us this. 
So we know this, and he says it this way, right? We know this because, you know, somebody, somewhere at some time, he said something. That's how he actually phrases it here in verse five, in verse 6. He says, but one has testified somewhere saying. Now, it sounds almost like the author doesn't know who said what we're about to read, but the author absolutely knows who said what we're about to read. Not only would the author have known who said what we're about to read, but the recipients of the verse verse here would have known. The recipient of the letter of the Hebrews would have known exactly who the author was quoting. Here we're going to read, here the author then quotes verses four through six of Psalm eight. Now we read Psalm eight to open our service up today and we did so intentionally to connect us to this very moment. But the verses that, that are verses focused on here, verses four through six in Psalms eight are this. What is man that thou rememberest him or the son of man that thou art concerned about him? Thou hast made him for a little while lower than the angels. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. What, he's, what the author here is calling us back to is the context for what was written in Psalm 8. Now, since I told you he knows exactly who wrote it, what's great is if you turn to Psalm 8 and you look in your scriptures, you'll see the, the, the little title block for Psalms 8. Who does it say wrote Psalms 8? Anybody know? You can just look at the notes and guess if you don't want to flip all the way back to Psalms 8. That's okay. Who wrote Psalms 8? David. It is a Davidic Psalm. David. King David, right? He wrote Psalm 8. So we know who wrote Psalm 8. The author knew and the reader knew who it was. It was David. This is a psalm, a psalm of David. It was to be sung in worship to God. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. But then we get to this section that the the psalmist focuses in on. And it's the exact section pulled from the psalm and placed right here to say the angels aren't in charge of the earth. One, we know, God. God is fully in charge of the earth, but God has done something. The psalm itself magnifies God and ponders how extraordinary it is that God would so exalt the lowly man on earth. This is what's amazing about the relationship of the creation and the creator. It's God's original intention. You hear it in the psalm, right? What is man that thou would remember him? What is man, God, that you would even think of him? Why would you even consider man or, or the sons of man? Why would you consider them, Lord? You have made them lower than the angels. And then it goes from making man lowly, right? It goes into this. Thou hast crowned him with glory and honor and hast appointed him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. This is, this is callback to the creative order. Genesis 1, verses 26 through 28. I'll read it for you, or you can turn there now that you know where I'm going. Genesis 1, 26 through 28. Going from Hebrews to Genesis is going to be very difficult. If you stepped down to Psalms, it'll be a little easier. But all the way to the front of your Bible now, Genesis 1, 26 through 28, says this. Then God said, let us make man in our image, 
according to our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. That is the callback from Psalm 8, and it is the exact reference of Hebrews chapter 2. This is the creative, original intent of God. God intended man to be the crown of all creation because he made us in his image and gave us authority over the creation to steward it for God's glory. Amen? That is what God intended for man. It's kind of overwhelming when you think about it, that God intended to give us glory and honor at all. When you understand the vastness of what God has made, just the sheer, ridiculous size and scope of the cosmos. I like to say cosmos because it expands us out of simply our universe. To understand that, our universe is one of billions and billions and billions and billions and billions of billions of universes in what we call space. We call it that because it is filled with just space, all right? The fact that everything is in motion and whole galaxies can pass through whole other galaxies without ever having a collision of one sun with another because there is intense amounts of space in space. And all of it is under the sovereign, sustaining hand of our creator, savior, Jesus Christ. All of it, every bit of it. It doesn't spin, move, it doesn't give off energy. None of that happens to anything in any of the cosmos except Christ is sovereign over it. More so, in all of that space, there is a place in which Christ is concerned and gives rule and reign over all of the earth to us. Just to remind you, we were made from dirt. We were, we were just mud molded together, gifted life by the breath of God. That's what we are. Some, For some reason, the creator of all of that has given us the glory and honor of overseeing his world. We are his stewards. And he gave us things to do. Now that in and of itself is an overwhelming thought, amen? Just to think that. But it gets, the, the author has no, he has no intention of letting it stay right there. He intends to blow your mind in understanding the fullness of Christ and your role as man. We're going to look, we're going to move on now to the, our, the final portion of verse eight and then into verse nine. This is the end of our text for tonight. And I want to focus here. I want you to focus here on some phrases. The first phrase is, we do not see. You'll find that at the very end of verse eight. And then this next phrase, we see him. 
You'll find that in verse nine, okay? Now, I will read all of verse eight uh, after, the, the, after he quoted the psalm, just so we can remember the context, all right? So he finishes the quoting of psalm in verse eight, and then he continues on in this way. So I'm in the this latter portion of verse eight. It says this, for in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. All he's saying is that when God said he gave all subjection of the earthly things to man, he didn't leave anything out. It was all to be in subject to him. Here's the latter part of verse eight. But now we do not yet see all things subjected to him. Verse nine goes this way. But we do see him who has been made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. The two phrases, right? The two phrases, we do not see and we see him. Verse eight tells us that God subjected all earthly things to his image bearers. Now we think about this, how crazy is that? Us, he gave it to us. But look around you. We don't see it. When you look around, you do not feel as if all things are, are in subject to you, that, that you have in any way some sort of real authority to actually bring about the righteousness of God. Whether through our own sin or sin in others with greater authority and power, we don't feel that this place is under any subjugation by those that love God's righteousness. Amen? We look around and everything feels a little crazy. There are times that it feels we actually have no rule because we don't see it. That was the point of the author. We do not see all things subjected to him. It's not there because sin has gotten in the way. Amen? Sin has gotten in the way. So the author tells us, we don't see things, all things subjected to him. We, we're seeing something else. When we look around here, when our view is simply horizontal, we look around and think, all things down here seem to be subject to just chaos, whim. They're subject in many ways to the sin that people let rule them, guide them, and control them. And that sin is in absolute and total blasphemy against the one who does rule and reign. God, Jesus, our Savior, our King, He then transitions to verse nine. And, and this is where it becomes so hopeful. The encouragement is so strong. It's so deep. He says, yeah, we look around and we don't see it. This honor, this glory that the psalmist speaks of, the weight of, of God's original intent in creation, we don't see it. We feel like we have no control over anything. Sin throws everything out of whack. It starts in us. It is in those around us. In fact, it seems that the more authority someone has, the greater the sin that they have inside them and the more it seems to affect everything around them. 
Verse nine transitions to we see him. I like in the NSB when it starts with but, but we do see him. We don't see it. We don't see it anywhere, but we see him. Now, in your Bibles, that hymn should be capitalized. And it's different than some of the other hymns that we've seen. If you go to Psalm 8 and you read him, it's not necessarily all capitalized because the original intent of the psalmist in Psalm 8 was to remind us that God has given us dominion and authority because his purpose was to connect what God called us to do in creation with the singing of, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. The psalmist wanted to connect with our responsibility God gave to rule over creation so that we would carry forth God's majesty in all of the earth. That's the point. But what, what the author of Hebrews is about to do is to connect us to the overwhelming idea of who Christ is in Psalm 8, in Genesis 1, and here in Hebrews 2. Christ is in all of it. The entirety of God's word is about Jesus Christ, him glorified, him crucified, him resurrected, him redeeming. The whole of the scriptures is about Jesus. And so let your mind truly be blown. The author says, no, you don't see it. It seems helter-skelter at times. So stop looking at the wrong thing. Lift your eyes to Christ because we see him. In Christ, God's original intention in creation in Genesis 1 and his ultimate intention to redeem all things are fulfilled. That means that in Genesis 1, when it says that God had given all things to be ruled and reigned by Adam and Eve and Adam and Eve's offspring, that there was a responsibility placed on man in their creation to take care of God's creation is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But not just that. His ultimate plan of redemption is also fulfilled in Jesus Christ. All the honor and glory that God had bestowed on man is so hard for us to see. It is here that Christ stoops down to the very height of our potential glory to show and save us to far more. What does that mean? That means that the best man could be, that Psalm 8 glory and honor, that, that God speaking of glory and honor that he has given to man, that pinnacle of potential of man, to accurately proclaim the majesty of God in his creation, to subdue and fulfill, to subdue and fill the earth as God had called. That pinnacle that we so often completely miss. Christ had to stoop, he had to come down to that. Do you understand? Christ had to come down from heaven to that level of glory and honor. Because his glory and honor is far greater than that. But yet Christ does it. He stoops down to our level. He comes down as man and fulfills Psalm 8. He fulfills Genesis 1. He is the zenith 
of any human potential of glory and honor in magnifying God. Amen? That is who Christ is. But it's not all Christ is. Certainly Christ is far more than that. He seeks to go beyond that glory and honor to lift us up to his glory and his honor. That's where Christ calls. It says he did this at the very end of verse 9 by tasting death for us, for everyone. Christ tasted death. Now, if you don't understand what the word taste here means, as a Hebrew would read it, as, as an Israelite would read it, then it's, it just sounds like a gross statement. It's just it's disgusting. Why would you say that? But when you understand it, it calls us back to Psalm 34, 8. Do you remember Psalm 34, 8? Taste and see that the Lord is what? Good. All right, good. Good, you remember. Taste and see that the Lord is good. That's what the psalmist challenges us to. He calls to us. The psalmist says, taste and see that the Lord is good. And that taste is not like we think. The Hebrew idea is to fully partake of something. It's to completely experience it. That's why the psalmist says, taste and see. Taste and see for us are two completely different senses. They have nothing to do with each other. A lot of times, something can look good and taste disgusting. Or something can look gross and taste amazing. But here the psalmist connecting us with the real Hebrew understanding of taste, it's to completely experience and understand. It's to give yourself over to taste and see that the Lord is good. The psalmist says, if you truly seek the Lord with all of your heart, you will find the Lord good. The problem so often in us not finding the Lord good, by the way, in us wanting to reshape who God says he is, is because we don't actually fully give ourselves to God. We don't actually fully immerse ourselves. We don't truly taste and see. We hold back parts that we don't want the Lord to be sovereign over. We hold back ideas that we feel God should fulfill instead of letting God truly be God. Christ died so we could understand the fullness of the glory and honor that God has bestowed on us as we see the glory and honor that is bestowed on him. What have we already read in Hebrews, right? In these last days has spoken to us in son whom he appointed heir of all things through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, nature and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he made purification of sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. That Christ, that God, that Savior, stooped down as man to show us how to truly understand the glory of being an image bearer of God and to carry us past that, to truly see the radiance of the glory of God that he accurately reflected for us. 
R. Kent Hughes in his commentary uh, on Hebrews from the Preaching the Word commentary series said it, said, said it this way, so succinctly, so perfectly. Christ on the cross is the measure of their worth. Christ on the throne is a prophecy of their significance and sure dominion. Now, when it says their worth, think, think of your worth. Christ on the cross is the measure of your worth. How much does Christ value and love you? The cross. The cross is that symbol. Christ so loved you that he endured the cross for you so that sin and death could have no hold and no claim on you so that you could receive his righteousness in place of your total trash unrighteousness. That's the cross. How much, how much is the measure of of worth that he values you, it's that much. We can't fathom it because we don't know what it's like to be God and decide to take a missionary jaunt to earth. We don't know what that's like. We know that that worth is inestimable on our behalf. More so, Christ on the throne, as Hebrews has so rightly told us, the ruling and reigning exalted Christ, that after he went from the cross, he sat down at the right hand of God, fully displaying all radiance and glory of God because he is God, that throne. That Christ on that throne is a prophecy of our significance and sure dominion. What does that mean? That means that that Christ on the on, on throne right now, where he sits and rules and reigns, is a reminder to us that there is coming a time, prophecy means to speak truth. That's what prophecy means. Don't get too scooby-doo on it, right? I'm not telling you it's going to rain in three months. That's all I'm telling you. I'm saying this, is, this prophecy is Christ is on the throne. That is truth speaking. That is prophecy. That prophecy is to remind us of the significant dominion and coming authority that God will give to his people. Now that should make you very encouraged because when you look around here, you see chaos. You see so often it's seeming like sin has authority in ways that it truly does not because the war is over, Christ is one, he sits on his throne. He is only tarrying because there yet might be one more day where, the, where another one of his children turns in repentance. We don't know who they are. We don't know where they are but they are his and they will repent. And when all of his children have repented, he will return. He will. All things will be under his hand then. Ruling and reigning in a way that we do not fully understand. He will be ruling and reigning in a non-corporeal way. Then we will fully understand. Then we will know. Not only that, then we will rule and reign alongside Christ. Not to the same authority, under him. We will joyfully rule and reign under Christ, not the angels. In fact, the angels will then become a part of doing our, our mirrored will. We will seek to enact the will of God, and they will help us in doing that thing. How crazy is that to think? I think it's crazy because every time someone bumps into an angel, what, is, what does the angel have to say? The angel says, fear not. At this point, it's like, you, you, know, you know exactly. The angel says, fear not. Apparently, angels are terrifying beings. 
And yet God, for some reason, in making us image bearers and in redeeming us with such great worth as the cross, seeks to place us in some sort of authority over the coming age. What a ridiculous idea is. Now I want you to, I want you to turn that in an even more, more practical way. We need to get even more practical with that understanding. That's amazing, by the way, to think that Christ does that for us. To think that Christ wants us to know and understand the full weight and glory of honor that Christ, that God has bestowed on us, even here on this place, and to show us how much glory and honor God will instill and seeks to instill to us in the future. What a gift. What an encouragement to your heart when it feels like the house is burning down around you, right? When it feels like everything at work is failing. How much does Christ love you? He loves you as much as the cross. And how much will Christ give you? He loves you and gives you as much as the throne of God. Think about it. You are joint heirs with the Son of God. God looks at you and says, son and daughter. Amazing. And so here's what I want. I want us to be a better ad, okay? I want us to be a better ad, the kind of ad that there is no money that can be placed on. There's no amount of money. I want us to be a better ad that has a better reach than the Super Bowl. I want us to get it, all right? Christ, this is important for you to understand. We have for a generation and a half now, sought to water down and make more accessible the truth of Jesus Christ. It's what, we've, it's what has happened. It was a huge movement in the church to try to make Christ available to those who might be seeking him or maybe are seeking something but didn't know they were seeking him. And in doing so, we have compromised the truth of Christ. And when I say that, that's like, okay, yeah, well, maybe we didn't get some truths right. No, you don't understand. When I say we've compromised the truth of Christ, I mean we have compromised the saving power and the authority that Christ wields to change someone. We've, we've sacrificed it. He gets us in a way, tries to make Christ like us. Now, to be sure, Christ was like us in every way. But to say that, misses that Christ was unlike us in every way. Both of those statements are true. And if you only have one, you don't fully understand Christ. Christ did not need to experience humanity to relate to us. Okay? Christ did not need to experience humanity to relate to us. He needed to become human to save us. Here's what I mean. I want to make sure I get my metaphors right. Steve Jobs, in building a computer in his garage, didn't need to experience the electricity that would pass over a microprocessor to understand how the computer worked and indeed to know how to build and fix that computer. He didn't need to experience it. He could do it and knew it because he had made it. Do you understand what I'm saying? Your mechanic hasn't had to go through a seminar where he knows what it feels like when the electric charge passes through your spark plug and ignites a bit of gasoline mist thrown into a chamber by your fuel injector to feel the explosion and compression on the piston that then drives the spinning torque onto, your, onto the crankshaft in your car 
to be able to build an engine, to know how it works, to diagnose it and fix problems that happen into it. He doesn't need to do that because he understands the engine. Christ doesn't need to know what the pot feels like when it gets a crack in it because he made the pot. He knows what, the, what it feels like to have the crack in it. He knows and understands how to fix the crack. He made it. Christ made you. He made you with his words. Do you understand that? He understands what it's like when you have failed and are broken. No more than that, he knows how to fix you, <laughs> right? You know how many billions of dollars are spent in the industry of trying to fix us? So many. <laughs> billions and billions of dollars spent. Healthcare, psychological fields, therapeutics, fancy creams, all made to fix you. Christ knows how to fix you. He doesn't need help. He didn't even need more experiences. You know why he did that? You know why he came to earth? Simply because he loved you. And in walking as the pinnacle of man, the full zenith of glory and honor to man, hear me, as he did that, he showed us exactly how we're to walk. So that Hebrews will tell us, we don't even have a, we don't, it's not like we have a, Hebrew, a high priest that doesn't understand what we're going through, right? It's not like our high priest is some rich guy that didn't know what it was like to, you know, be poor. Or didn't know what it was like to not know where he was going to sleep one night. Didn't know what it was like to not know where his meal, next meal was coming from. Didn't know what it was like to travel. Didn't know what it was like to have his family hate him. See, all those aspects of the He Gets His campaign are absolutely true. And all of those things were to save you, not to make you feel better. You know why? Because you know what's going to make you feel better? Being saved. <laughs> That's what makes you feel better. Having your unrighteousness atoned for. That's what fixes you. That's it. That is how you fully experience the joy of the Lord. And that joy passes any understanding you could possibly possess of any temporal pleasure. It is sustaining and it is lasting. He didn't need to experience suffering to make us feel seen. He experienced suffering to show us how much he cares and to show us how we can seize the glory and honor that belongs to him now. Now. He gave you a blueprint for the hardest this life could be. Complete and total injustice leading to death. That's what Christ did. Do you want to know how to suffer? Suffer like Christ. What did Christ do? He continued to magnify the majesty of God in all the earth, all the way to his death. That's our call. We don't need to wait. We need to live. Live Christ now. Abide. 
in son. Speak in son. This is the call. The best advertisement for the truth of Christ is not that he gets us, but that we see him and can reflect him to the world in truth and honor, in glory and power forever and ever. Amen. As we walk to the final portion of our service, it is response, responding to the word, praying to God, talking to the Father who indeed counts us as son and daughter because of the righteousness of Christ. Cry out to him, talk to him. Where is your struggle? Where is your hurt? Yes, Christ knows it. Christ indeed came to fix it because he came to take sin and death's power over you away that you might be free to glorify God. And the real question then becomes, how do we carry that forward? How do we live that? How do we live in son? How do we do abide living in Christ? And how do we carry that forward in each of our lives? This is almost the same question every week in some form that we ask, that we respond to because that's the question of scripture. Are we a good advertisement for Christ or are we just a good advertisement for us? That's a bad one. It's a bad one. Yes, Christ can relate to you. Praise his name for that. But he didn't just come so that he could relate to you. In fact, that is an ancillary position to why he came. He came to save you. To bring you healing from sin and death. I think we should rejoice in that. We should praise him. We should thank him. If you're in Christ, rejoice and thank him tonight. If you are not in Christ, receive him. And then rejoice in him because it's instant. Accepting his death and burial and resurrection on your behalf, paying for your sins, giving you his righteousness, that is instant healing. When you repent, that is instant restoration. Let's live in that so that we can be the best ad campaign for Christ. We can literally be little Christs moving forward in the spirit of God to carry the truth and glory of God forward. Let's pray and talk to God. Let's wrestle with that in response.